Well, what is the essence or the nature or the, the character of true religion? What is the character of, of true Christianity? Well, that is the question that the 17th century Scottish minister, Henry Scougal, explored in his short booklet, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And that is the same question that the Apostle Paul is concerned with in our sermon text for today, Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Uh, you can go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles. You can also find the text printed in your bulletins. But what is the essence or, or what is the nature of true faith? Now, before Henry Scougal answered that question in his booklet, he first explored where true religion or true Christianity is not to be found. He wrote that some wrongly place it or place true faith in the outward man, in a constant course of external duties and a model of performances. If they live peaceably with their neighbors, frequent the church or their closet, and sometimes extend their hands to the relief of the poor, they think they have sufficiently acquitted themselves. In other words, some people believe that, that the essence of authentic faith is in the, the dutiful performance of religious duties and religious rituals. Well, still others, Skugel writes, put all religion in the affections, in rapturous hearts, and ecstatic devotion. In other words, uh, some believe true faith and true Christianity consists of, of emotional experiences. Well, he concludes that these things may accompany true faith, but they are not by themselves the essence of true faith. True faith will produce good works, but the essence of true religion is not found in external duty alone. True faith may produce and should produce joyous emotions. But the essence of true faith is not found in emotional experience alone. Well, Skugel defines authentic Christianity this way. True religion is a union of the soul with God, a real participation of the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul, or in the apostles' phrase, it is Christ formed within us. In other words, authentic Christianity is found in our union with Christ. This is what we considered last week in the book of Colossians. We looked at what Paul wrote about the, the truth and what is characterized by the Christian's union with Christ. A true Christianity is found in the fact that Christians have been regenerated. They have been made new. They have been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit who now dwells in them and animates and, and fuels their worship, animates and, and fuels their spiritual life. And with that in mind, listen now to God's words delivered through the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink, or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He does not hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. 
Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Did you notice what, what Paul wrote? Verse 16. True religion does not consist in external duties or man-made rules and commands. What we eat or, or drink or the religious rituals in which we participate. Verse 18. True religion does not consist in seeking higher spiritual experiences, visionary experiences, as Paul puts it. Where is the essence of true religion found? Look at verse 19. It is found in Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with the growth from God. I have three points to today's sermon to help us consider this idea. The first is the substance of man-made religion. The substance of man-made religion. The second is the failure of man-made religion. And then the third is the substance of true religion. And so first, the substance of man-made religion. And so let's return for a moment to Paul's words from last week that we studied last week from Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. He warned the Colossians to be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world rather than on Christ. Now Paul picks up on that theme in our verses for this week. You could say he doubles down on that theme. And so he writes, therefore, don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of what was to come. The substance is Christ. Again, to go back to, to last week in verses 9 through 10, Paul reminded the Colossians that in Jesus, that in Jesus, the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily. Jesus is God. And that they, Christians, have been filled by Jesus. They have been united to him. Well, therefore, for that reason, they should not let anyone act as their judge or claim that salvation or true spiritual life is, is dependent on keeping certain external rules and regulations. Now, brothers and sisters, the, the truth is that we are often tempted to look for true, true religion in external religious practices. We're tempted to find our comfort and insurance and, and meaning in, in rituals and the performance of duties rather than in Christ. And so Paul's reference here to food and drink is, is probably a reference, at least in part, to the Old Testament dietary laws that God gave to the, the people of Israel. As some foods were considered clean for the Jewish people and they were allowed to eat them. Some were unclean. They were not permitted to eat them. Now, God gave these laws to the people of Israel to mark Israel out from the nations around them as a distinct people, a, a holy people, to set them apart from the nations that surrounded them. But as Paul puts it in verse 17, these, these laws were but a shadow that pointed to Christ. They no longer apply now that Christ has come. The shadow has passed away. The substance is here. I flip over to Mark chapter 7 in your Bibles for a moment because we see Jesus making this very point in his ministry. God's distinction between clean and unclean animals had nothing to do with the animals themselves. It was to ultimately reveal to Israel that they were morally unclean, that they needed their hearts cleansed. Oh, that's what Angie just read for us in Isaiah chapter 1. These laws were but shadows revealing their need for Christ. They were but shadows revealing the substance of Christ. A look at Mark chapter 7. 
And I'd encourage you to really go read the whole chapter. The whole chapter concerns the substance of man-made religion. But starting in verse 14, uh, this is what Jesus says. Summoning the crowd again, he, Jesus, told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside, food and drink, for example, can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Are you also as lacking in understanding? Do you not realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? For it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Friends, holiness does not come from a change in your diet. Holiness comes from a change of heart. It seems that this false teaching that had been swirling in the city of of Colossae may have had some Jewish element to it. Uh, So there were some insisting that, that true religion was to be found not just in Jesus, but in Jesus plus the observance of these Old Testament dietary restrictions and other external rituals. So we also see these Jewish elements in the insistence on the observance of certain religious festivals or holy days, particularly the, the Christian or the sorry, the Jewish Sabbath day. So in the Old Testament, sacrifices to the Lord were offered at certain festivals and on the new moon, the first day of the month. This is what was being spoken about in Isaiah chapter one. God commanded the Israelites in the Old Testament to diligently observe the Sabbath day. But again, these were simply shadows pointing to the substance of Christ. Those Old Testament festivals and sacrifices simply pointed to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. They're no longer needed. Just go read the book of Hebrews if you have any questions about that. Christians are no longer required to observe the Sabbath day. It is Jesus who is to be our Sabbath rest. If you have any questions about that, go read Romans chapter 14. Now, the point of all this is that these false teachers seem to be teaching that the Colossians needed more than Jesus Christ for salvation. They needed more than Jesus Christ for their spiritual life. Jesus was not enough. They were teaching salvation, spiritual fullness comes through all of these external rituals and human traditions, refraining from certain foods, observing certain festivals, and the list goes on. Ah, friend, yes, you do these things, and everything will be okay. You will be right with God if you just do these things. Friends, that is basically the message of every other religion other than Christianity. At some level, they are all built off the idea that human effort is the way to God. That is our works that find favor with God. That we will be all right with God if we just do these things. Friends, because of the sinful pride of our hearts, it is very tempting, even as Christians, to think that the essence of true faith is found, as Henry Skugel put it, in a constant course of external duties. It's very tempting to think that it is our own efforts that make the difference. One of the, the precepts of the Roman Catholic Church is to observe specific days of fasting and abstinence. 
the most important of those being during Lent. Well, it's not that fasting is a bad thing to do. I think it's a good thing to do. But Catholicism has elevated it to a precept of the church, something that you must do in order to be right with God. Friends, Seventh-day Adventists still argue that Christians must worship on the Jewish Sabbath and follow something close to the Old Testament dietary restrictions in order to have true fellowship with God. And maybe you come from a church background that says wearing jewelry to church or failing to, to dress formally to church is a, is a sign of worldliness. At the church I grew up in, people who loved the Lord, the, one of the signs of holiness was at the end of the service showing the conviction that you must have had from the preaching by going up front, kneeling, and praying at the front of the church. The friends, I wasn't, a, I wasn't a Christian at the at the time that I was in that church, and yet I can't tell you the number of times I went up to the front and prayed. I was engaging in ritual, not heartfelt worship to the Lord. A 2021 survey of religious beliefs in India found that almost one-third of those who claim to be Christians share the Hindu belief that people can be purified or made holy or made clean as they wash themselves in the Ganga River, or as I would say, the Ganges River. The people seek the false comfort of external duties. And friends, there are more subtle ways that this creeps into our thinking as well. Um, maybe you're tempted to believe God's love for you goes up and down based on how much you read your Bible that day. Whether you fasted, uh, how many minutes that you spent in, in prayer that day, how well you obeyed. Friends, if you come from a legalistic church background, you may struggle with false guilt if you no longer keep all the man-made rules that you were once required to, that were once marks of holiness. But Christian, God's love for you is not dependent on your works. God's love for you is not dependent on your works. Your good deeds are important. They are the, the evidence that God has set his love on you. We'll think about that more in a minute. But they are not the basis for that love. Your good works are not the basis for God's love. God's love is freely given. It does not depend on you. God's love is stable and secure. It is faithful and it is everlasting. It comes through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. My friends, notice that the false teachers in Colossae seem to be quick to judge those who did not hold to the precepts of their man-made religion. They judged those who did not play by their rules. Friends, your sinful pride not only tempts you to rely on your own efforts, to look to external ritual, it also tempts you to judge those who do not measure up to your personal standards of holiness. If I pray at the, the front of the church or I raise my hand during worship, I'm more holy than everyone else. If I dress up for church and you do not, I must be more holy than you. Friends, there's nothing wrong with dressing formally to church. Some see it as a sign of reverence to God. There's nothing wrong with raising your hands in, in worship. The problem is then when that becomes the mark of holiness for everyone. So friends, ask yourself, what am I tempted to judge others for? What do I do that makes me feel like a, a better Christian, a more holy person than everyone around me? Well, your, your answers to those questions will likely reveal what you are tempted to trust in for your spiritual growth and for your spiritual life other than Jesus Christ. Now, your answers will, will likely reveal the legalism of your own heart, 
and they will reveal what, in practice, you believe to be the essence of true religion. Friends, it's for this reason that churches need to be careful not to bind the consciences of Christians, except where Scripture binds the conscience. To not go beyond what Scripture says and call something sin that Scripture does not call sin. External ritual is one place we are tempted to look for true religion, the the substance of man-made religion. But the other place to which Paul directs our attention is to experience. Look at verse 18. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. So an ascetic is someone who lives a life of extreme self-denial. So think monks, nuns, that would be an example of an an ascetic lifestyle. At the core of the belief in in church history that gave rise to the various orders of of monks and, and nuns that we still can find today was the belief that higher communion with God or or higher fellowship with God was made available through extreme self-denial. How can I be closer to God? The answer is a vow of poverty, a vow of chastity, a vow of solitude, extreme fasting, the the list goes on. This is likely what was believed by the false teachers in Colossae. Self-denial was the pathway into the visionary realm they claimed to have access to. They seem to be claiming access to additional revelation from God, a closer communion with God through asceticism. God's revelation through Jesus and through his word was not enough for them. They were looking for more. And in doing so, they lost touch with Jesus. My friends, asceticism is not the only way that we may be tempted to look towards experience or look outside of Jesus Christ for spiritual life. My friends, it's it's not the only place that we look for a higher experience with God. Again, some believe true fellowship and communion with God is found in emotional experiences. They seek high, extraordinary emotional experiences the same way those in Colossae seem to be looking towards the visionary realm. The sign of communion or union with God is how much their emotions are stirred. Whether or not their emotions are stirred by the word of God and a right understanding of God matters little. They just want the emotional experience. Church services are judged based on whether they provide a transcendent experience. Friends, there is nothing wrong with emotions. Emotions in worship are a a good thing. and something to be desired. Something to even be prayed for. But when emotions become the sole or the highest standard of judging the Christian life, it can quickly pull you away from Christ. Friends, I'm not, I'm not sure that any of you are into ascetic practices or any of you are claiming access to the visionary, visionary realm. But I do wonder if at times you might be tempted to believe God's word is not enough. For example, how often do you look for God to speak to you directly through the subjective impressions of your mind or through the, the feelings of your heart? I believe God told me to do this. God is calling me to do that. I'm waiting for God to give me a peace about that. As the 18th century pastor Jonathan Edwards wrote, many godly persons have undoubtedly in this and other ages exposed themselves to woeful delusions by a tendency to lay too much weight on impulses and impressions. I would therefore urge the people of God to be very cautious how they give heed to such things. 
I've seen them fail in very many instances and know by experience that impressions being made with great power and upon the minds of true saints are no sure signs of their being revelations from heaven. Friends, God can and I believe sometimes does impress things on the minds and hearts of believers. I don't think it's that God does not do that. Believe it's not the, the normal way that God speaks to his people or the normal way that you should be looking for God to speak to you. God normally speaks to us through his spirit as we come to his word. He uses his word to, to transform our minds and give us the wisdom that we need to make wise decisions and to live the Christian life. If you believe God is impressing something on your mind or heart, I would encourage you to check it against the the words of scripture to seek the counsel of other Christians before taking action. This would caution you about assuming that the impressions of your mind are the same thing as the voice of God. But it also seems that these false teachers were engaging in the worship of angels, likely by calling on angels to protect them from evil spiritual forces. Again, the the problem is what the problem has been this whole time. They were looking for something other than Christ. They were looking to someone other than Christ. As Paul makes clear in Colossians chapter 2.15, power and authority over the spiritual realm is not found in angels or anything else. It is Christ alone who is Lord of all. Now again, my my guess is that most of you would readily nod your head in agreement to the statement that Christ is Lord of all. But friends, in practice, do you look for spiritual protection and spiritual blessing elsewhere, outside of Christ? Do you look for spiritual fullness outside of Christ? Are you ever tempted to pray to Mary or those who have been deemed saints for an extra level of spiritual protection? Friends, you have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. Why would you waste time praying to anyone else? Maybe you would say, yes, yes, Jesus is Savior and Lord. There is no one greater, but I'm going to call on my ancestors or visit the witch doctor just to be safe. Yes, Jesus has all power and authority, but I better anoint my home or business or car or whatever else I can think of uh, just to make sure the demons stay away. Friends, to, to rely on those things is to say that Jesus is not enough. The essence of of true faith is not found in man-made rituals or mystical spiritual experiences. A man-made religion looks to things other than Jesus' ritual experience for the fullness of spiritual life. But these things are powerless to produce spiritual life and spiritual growth. That takes us to the the second point of the sermon, which is the failure of man-made religion. The failure of man-made religion. Look at verse 23. This is what Paul says about all those man-made regulations that say you cannot eat that, or you cannot drink that, or you cannot touch that. This is what he says to those who believe that living an ascetic lifestyle is the path to true holiness and true fellowship with God. Although they, these external man-made regulations, although they have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. In other words, friends, these things do not stop the problem of sin. They do not accomplish what they claim to accomplish. And if you stop to think about it, you'll quickly realize the truth of this. Did your parents, when you were growing up, ever force you to say thank you? 
Or did they ever force you to apologize to a sibling or a relative? Children, do your parents now ever force you to say thank you or apologize to a sibling or a relative? Well, if so, you know that your parents forcing you to say thank you or sorry has no power to actually make you feel thankful. It has no power to actually make you feel sorrowful in your heart. And the same thing was true of the people of Israel. God gave them his good law on Mount Sinai, but it did not change their hearts. If you have any questions about that, just go read the Old Testament. Now, this does not mean it's a bad thing to say thank you or sorry or to tell your kids to say thank you or sorry. I think that's a good thing. It's just that that alone is going to do nothing to produce true sorrow or true thankfulness in the hearts of your children. Just as when you were growing up, it did nothing to produce true sorrow or true thankfulness in your own heart. The same thing is true with certain spiritual disciplines. Reading your Bible is good. Praying is good. Fasting is good. Denying yourself some earthly pleasure for a time can be good. The problem is not necessarily with the spiritual discipline. The problem comes when you rely on the ritual or the discipline rather than relying on Christ. The problem comes when you only concern yourself with outward obedience or or outward performance of these rituals and never concern yourself with your heart. That dressing up or not wearing jewelry becomes more important than the attitudes of the heart, that has having a heart that is pleasing to the Lord, of having a heart that is, is reverent before the Lord. So Alexander McLaren, a, another Scottish minister, this time from the 19th century, wrote this. Any asceticism is a great deal more to men's tastes In other words, any asceticism is more desirable to people than abandoning self. They will rather stick hooks in their backs and do the swinging puja, which I think is a reference to those people who stick hooks in their back and literally get raised off the ground and swing. People would rather do that than give up their sins and yield up their wills. There is only one thing that will put the collar on the neck of the animal within us, our sinful nature, and that is the power of the indwelling Christ. Ascetic religion is godless, for its practitioners essentially worship themselves. In other words, if your measure of true religion is some sort of legalism, some sort of asceticism, you're actually indulging your sinful flesh instead of battling against your sinful flesh. This is why Paul calls it a a false humility. In the name of, of humility, you don't wear jewelry, or you fast, or you never dance, or never take a sip of alcohol, or deny yourself some earthly good, or, or dress up every time you go to church. But what you're really doing is relying on your own strength and your own power to bring you closer to God. By your own outward rituals, you're drawing attention to yourselves and your own strength, rather than your Savior. It's a form of pride disguised as humility. Friends, Jesus condemned the Pharisees for this very thing, for practicing their righteousness before others so that they would be seen, that others would see their holiness. Theirs was a false humility. Nevertheless, it is so easy to believe that Christianity is just about following the rules. That's why Paul writes that it has a reputation for wisdom. In our pride, it's so tempting to think, oh yes, if I just do this one thing or that thing, God will be pleased with me. Like, that's the secret to the Christian life right there. Let me just do this thing. Now, Paul is not arguing, let me be clear about this, Paul is not arguing that we can ignore God's commands or that obedience to the commands that we find in Scripture are unimportant. 
If you have any questions about that, just come back for next week's sermon on the, actually two weeks from now, on the first part of Colossians 3. Now friends, Christians are called to be holy because God is holy. What Paul is condemning is the idea that outward obedience is all that matters. That outward obedience is all that matters and that the rituals themselves have some mystical power to change you or to make you new or to create spiritual life within you. No, God cares about our hearts. That's what we saw from the reading in Isaiah. Rules and and regulations by themselves are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. They cannot change your heart. As as McLaren wrote, it is harder to give up the sin of our heart than to simply follow a rule. It's easier to stop eating a certain food than to cultivate self-control in all areas of life. It's easier to withdraw from society than to learn and practice the patience of Jesus Christ with others. It is easier to renounce marriage and sex than to put to death the lust that rages in your heart. It is easier to live in poverty than it is to make Christ your treasure. What you need is not more rules and regulations. You need Christ to be at work in you, producing the fruit of the Spirit. Because that is the substance of true religion. And that takes us to the the third and final point of the sermon, the substance of true religion. To go back to the words of Henry Skugel, true religion is a union of the soul with God, a real participation of the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul. Or in the apostles' phrase, it is Christ formed within us. Friends, the, the power of true religion is not found in yourself. Your ability to keep certain rules and regulation. The power of true religion is found in Christ alone. It's exactly where Paul directs our attention in verse 20. Paul writes, if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. In other words, how foolish you are to continue to submit to man-made rules and regulations if you have died to Christ. They are the things that are passing away. They are destined to perish. Remember our verses from last week. The Christian's union with Christ is the exact reason. The Christian's union with Christ is the exact reason Paul gave for why Christians should avoid the empty philosophies of this world. We're to continue walking in Christ because the fullness of spiritual life is only found in Christ. Believers have everything they need in Christ. It is in Jesus, not rules and regulations, that our sinful flesh has been put to death. Forgiveness does not come through ascetic practices or penance. It does not come by observing certain days of fasting or going to confession with a priest. Forgiveness comes in Christ alone. Colossians 2.14, he has forgiven us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligation that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Friends, if if you are in Christ, you do not have to continually earn God's forgiveness through external practices. It was purchased once for all at the cross. Protection from the evil forces of darkness does not come by calling on angels or saints or ancestors or some special anointing ritual. Because at the cross, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Christ. And you have been united to this Jesus. 
The substance of true religion is a union of the soul with God. How does this union happen? Friends, if you're here and not a Christian, I hope that it's obvious by now that the union with Christ, the union with Christ does not come through external ritual. Fasting for a month every year does nothing to unite your soul to God. No, the, the union of a soul of the soul with God is a work of God. It's what the Bible calls regeneration. To be born again. It's a sovereign act of God by which He gives new spiritual life. We who were spiritually dead are made alive in Him. Friends, if if you want to have union with God, stop looking for a magic formula. Stop looking for what you must do. Stop placing your, your hope in doing everything just right. Friends, instead, ask God to be at work in you. Do not come to God with the false humility of so-called good works. Uh, what can I bring to Him? My good outweighs my bad. Now come to Him in true humility, confessing and repenting of your sins, acknowledging your unworthiness before Him, acknowledging Jesus as Lord and placing your trust and confidence in Him. This is what the Bible calls repentance and faith. And Christian, what advice does Paul leave you? How, do you conti- how are you to continue to walk in Jesus Christ, as Paul put it in Colossians chapter 2.6? I should be clear by now that the answer is not a more robust set of New Year's resolutions or, or simply changing your habits. No, the answer comes in verse 19. It is to hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. Friends, it is to abide in Jesus Christ. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking, even as I say that. What does that mean? That isn't helpful. Give me what I must do. Brothers and sisters, don't you see that's exactly what Paul is warning about? Me giving you a, a checklist to follow has the appearance of wisdom. But it's not ultimately what you need. You need to be reminded of what Christ has done for you. You need to be reminded of who you are in Christ. You need to to remember what it means to be united to Him. You need to rehearse all the blessings of union with Christ that Paul just listed in the verses from last week. Friends, this is exactly where Paul points the Colossians in the verses we're going to study in two weeks at the beginning of chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. So if you have been raised with Christ, if you have been united to Him, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And as we'll see in the verses that immediately follow those verses, it is by doing this, by setting your mind on things above, by being reminded of your union with Christ, that you can put sin to death. You're to remember who you are in Christ and all the benefits and blessings that he has purchased for you. Friends, it's not as if Christians have nothing to do. Well, we should seek to abide in Christ by abiding in his word. By, by fellowshipping with him in prayer, by loving others and a host of other things. But those things are ultimately to be motivated by what Christ has done for you. You should overflow with gratitude, as Paul put it in Colossians 2.7, which should then prompt your good works. So Henry Skugel gives this picture of true faith at work in the life of God and the soul of man. He writes this, The love which a godly man bears to God, the love which a godly man bears to God, is not so much by virtue of a command that tells him to do so, 
Instead, it is by a new nature instructing and prompting him to it. In other words, love for God is not produced by somebody just telling you, love God, do this. It comes from within, when Christ transforms your heart. He goes on to write, Nor does he pay, nor does the godly man pay his devotions as an unavoidable tribute, only to appease God's wrath, or to quiet his clamorous conscience. But those religious exercises are the proper outflow of Christ at work in him. In other words, we, we don't just go to rituals to avoid God's wrath because our conscience is bothering us. No, our, our worship is motivated by, by Christ at work in us. The godly man prays and gives thanks and repents, not only because these things are commanded, but rather because his awareness of God's goodness and of the folly and misery of a sinful life give him a desire to do so. His generosity is not forced nor his offerings extorted from him. His love makes him willing to give, and even if there were no outward obligation, no command, his heart would devise ways to show love and generosity. What is the reason that the godly, the, the, the godly Christian gives thanks and repents and prays and gives offerings, serves, love others? It's not because there is a command demanding that he do it. It is because his heart has been changed by Jesus Christ. Friends, it is Christ's love in us that produce love and good works. It is not the good works that produce a love for Christ. Man-made religion gets this order wrong. It looks to what we can do to produce spiritual life within ourselves. It looks to what we can do to produce spiritual life within ourselves. It looks to what we can do to earn God's love and favor. The essence of true religion is to realize and accept that you cannot earn God's love or create spiritual life or create spiritual health on your own. Friends, these are our free gifts of God's grace. As you overflow with gratitude for these gifts, for the gift of God's grace, the Spirit of God will naturally help you to respond in obedience. The, the Spirit will inspire within you love and good deeds. Friends, that is why we can say Christ is all we need. And the essence of true religion is found in him alone. Let's pray.